welcome to this episode of Talking Constitutions, a series of podcasts in which we explore the constitutional arrangements that frame the day-to-day affairs of politics and that affect our lives in a myriad of ways. Our subject today is justiciability, considering the meeting point of law and the courts, politics and constitutions. My name is John Hudson, and discussing these questions with me are Lorna Drummond and Aidan O'Neill. Lorna Drummond QC is Sheriff in Tayside Central and Fife, and Justice of Appeal in the Court of Appeal in the Territories of St. Helena, Ascension and Tristan de Cunha. In 2020, she was appointed Sheriff of the Sheriff Appeal Court and Temporary High Court Judge. She is co-author of a book on judicial review, A Practical Guide to Public Law Litigation in Scotland, published in 2019. And then we have Aidan O'Neill QC, who is a barrister and and Queen's Counsel in both England and Scotland, what's known as a double silk. He's ranked amongst the top 10 counsel in the UK in terms of number of appearances before the UK Supreme Court. In addition to his work in human rights and employment and equality law, he has a wide ranging European constitutional and public law practice, both north and south of the border in consistently groundbreaking cases. In September 2019, Aidan appeared before the UK Supreme Court in Cherry Miller II, which unanimously upheld the ruling of the inner house of the Court of Session that the Prime Minister's advised to the Queen that she prorogue Parliament for five weeks in the run-up to the then Brexit date of 31st October 2019 was unlawful. He's also the author of substantial academic articles and legal practitioner textbooks. Let's start off by very briefly clarifying some terms or concepts. I'm thinking of words such as justiciability, competence and standing. Lorna, could you give us help with a little bit of brief definition of those? Yeah, thanks, John. Um, yeah, justiciability, I think we start with that. That is a word that means broadly that the issue is capable of being determined by the courts. So it sets the limits at which courts can exercise their judgment and in matters it will not exercise judgment. So, for example, the Crown's prerogative power to negotiate international treaties, that's been determined by the courts to be non-justiciable and as have parliamentary conventions. And the rationale for that is that these all relate to operations of the highest organs of state in their interactions with each other and also with foreign states and that they're intrinsically political and therefore not justiciable by the courts. So that's in a very sort of broad sense what justiciability is, but it does include other elements and it's not limited to that. It also includes the legal concept of standing, for example, and that's a concept used to determine if a party may bring a case to court. Um, Courts have recognised that, certainly in the public law area, a person with a sufficient interest may include somebody representing the the public interest, but it is context-specific. So if somebody doesn't have a sufficient interest, then the the case could not be brought, and in that sense, it would be non-justiciable. But there are a number of other elements to justiciability, and they do include whether the dispute is an academic one, whether it's a hypothetical question that's been raised. The courts have determined that it must be a real live issue that's in dispute, before it will decide that it's something that it can judge upon. The courts are not simply 
sort of debating clubs. They're not advisory boards where you can go for just simply for a, a piece of advice. It has to be a practical question, a real question of law. I think just to be clear about some distinctions that can be made, justiciability is distinguishable from jurisdiction of a court. So the court has jurisdiction in a geographical sense and that in some cases it can only hear cases that have got a geographical link to it. And in other cases, there's just certain types of cases that can't be brought to a court. So, for example, judicial review in Scotland can only be heard by the court of session. So that's a question of jurisdiction rather than justiciability. And the last one that, that you raised, John, in the question is competency. I take that as a sort of wider concept. It does include justiciability, but it's the more wider question about whether the case has been competently raised before the court. Now, it could be it's not competently raised because it raises an issue that's non-justiciable, but it could be for all sorts of other reasons that it's not competent. Either the court doesn't have jurisdiction, for example, or the wrong party is being sued, or the case has already been determined in another forum. I mean, those are just a few examples of competency issues that might be raised. So am I right then, Lorna, in sensing that justiciability is actually quite narrow in terms of the range of cases that it applies to, that it's largely those that are on the borderline of the legal and political or constitutional? Yeah, I mean, that's primarily the examples that I've given to you, but it can be raised in other contexts as well. So it might arise, for example, questions of whether the issue at stake is hypothetical or academic or premature. That can arise in any case, okay. whether it's a political matter that's an issue or not. I mean, justiciability also arises in the EU context. So it's not just in a judicial review and where political questions arise. Uh, Aidan. Yeah, uh, Lorna's uh, account is, is absolutely right, and I agree with all of it. As she points out, there's, there's a whole series of potential hurdles which have been developed, in a sense, to try and stop cases be having to be, de be determined by courts. And the interesting thing about that is that they have developed over time. The courts, uh, particularly in a common law or court-based uh, system, a non-codified system, you get developments all the time and you get waves of fashion, as it were, one might say, and uh, or, or political judicial attitudes. Now, a lot of the barriers to the court speaking about and determining matters comes from a period of a, a relative political quietism, which I think can be characterised particularly in the in the 20th century, both in uh, in England and Scotland, uh, whereby various reasons are set up as to why things should not come before the courts. So that's very much, I would say, the first half of the 20th century, whereby lots of these rules are, are taken up. And the problem is, the, not so much the problem, but, but one of the issues is, is, is when do these rules change? Because at some levels, they're always you're always looking at what they said in the past at past cases. And when you're looking at the past at past cases, sometimes things move on, but nobody ever actually specifically overrules what was said in the past. So you sometimes get this constant reference back to what was apparently a rule clearly stated in, for example, McNaughton's trustees, that the courts are not an academic, uh, places for academic questions to be raised, and they're not an advisory board, and, and the courts in Scotland don't pronounce for example, bare declaratives of law. That's constantly 
that's a constant refrain which one gets, even although any number of cases, in fact, lots of cases I've been involved in, the courts have been persuaded to pronounce bare declarations of law to address what are apparently academic issues and the like. So although we have these apparently hard and fast rules, justiciability, standing, academic, hypothetical, they are incredibly contextual. Uh, and at some levels, if the courts are interested enough to want to determine an issue or hear an issue, then none of those rules will, will particularly stand in their way and they, they, they will go ahead with it. So they're not hard and fast rules. They are ways of courts deciding, in a sense, on its docket rather than on it, it being absolutely clear. Uh, for example, like a rule like a time bar where you know you're outside your, your three years or your five years, then that's hard and fast. But these, these are much more porous and permeable rules, uh, open to interpretation. Lorna speaks from the bench now, so she may have a, a... We've got different perspectives, and I'm very much still in practice, and still my job as a hired gun is, is always to try and get into court and to push against the boundaries and to persuade the court, hear this case, and then decide it in my favour. But there are still getting over the boundary of getting them to hear the case in the first place. Are there any differences in the, not so much in the criteria, but in the application of the criteria between England, English courts and Scottish courts, or indeed European courts? Uh, I don't know, either of you might have thoughts on that. Scotland were very much, uh, very restrictive in their approach to standing, particularly in public law cases, until relatively recently. And it's only been uh, as a re result of the AXA cases and the Walton case that that has changed. And now Scotland is very much more in line with England on having the, the test for standing being one of sufficient interest. Again, it's still, as Eden says, very porous and context specific. So uh, hard to codify these things, I think. But um, certainly the two jurisdictions have moved together quite closely in relation to standing. Thanks, Laura. Yeah, I, the, I mean, the standing issue, as you know, was, was, was a particular bugbear of mine, because what happened is there was a growth of administrative law, public law in England, really from really dated to the mid 60s onwards and uh, an increasing reliance upon judicial review as a specific subset of a kind of case and a kind of jurisdiction which the courts would exercise, which were increasingly involving supervising administrative decisions, governmental decisions, the idea of the judge over your shoulder. Now, Scotland, and I'll be controversial on this, as a relatively small jurisdiction, the tendency is to uh, an element of conservatism. I think that just happens in small jurisdictions. I've appeared in Northern Ireland, and it's even more smaller and even more conservative and, and, and somewhat inward looking. And the tendency is that they don't like change. The, the, the legal system doesn't like change. At some levels, it's because of the union, with the idea that the union created and preserved the Scottish legal system as, as a basic condition of the union with, with England. And at some levels, one always looks back to the 17th century as the golden age of where things were with Scots law. You had uh, Viscount Stairs institutions. You look back to the pristine time of the 17th century. So at some levels, anything which departs from 17th century precedent is a betrayal of the, the source and spirit of Scots law and, and you're being contaminated by elements of what's happening in England. So uh, 
there was an element of a resistance just because they do it south of the border, just because they're developing south of the border isn't necessarily a reason for Scotland to develop. And in some ways, it can be seen as a reaction against that. That that was an attitude, but I think that attitude has changed. But particularly on the issue of public law and judicial review, the development of the notion of public law developed in England. And what we then got in Scotland under pressure from House of Lords cases is to say, look, we don't you don't have a proper procedure for what really are public law issues, judicial review, you should introduce this procedure. And so judicial review procedure was introduced in Scotland, but it was said, we're not making any change on the substance of the law. And the leading case on this says, actually, we don't have a distinction between public law and private law. We don't need to follow that. that that's just what they do in England. We have judicial review for private arbitrations and the like. And so therefore, we still applied our private notions of standing, which were you had to have title and a financial interest, basically, to come to the court. Now, that became an incredibly difficult thing to try and overcome in public law cases in Scotland because you wouldn't have a financial interest. You don't have, by definition, because it's to do with public administration, usually, it doesn't necessarily impact upon your private rights. And, and so what then happened was you were, it was very, very difficult in Scotland to, to overcome that. And that, that, was, that became a bit of a mission on my part to try and find a case that would get to the House of Lords because they would then say, this is ridiculous. You've got proper broad rules of standing in England. So that, why is there any reason why Scotland should have uh, uh, stricter rules on standing? And eventually, you know, after a, a lot of pushing, uh, writing academically and then finding cases in which to do it, eventually with the case of AXA and then uh, Walton, which uh, uh, law knows against me, we then managed to, in two Scottish cases, have the rules of standing completely opened up such that they then became the standard cases which are referred to in England. So Scotland suddenly then became the leader on matters. There was still resistance from the Court of Session. They would, they, they would then say, oh, no, they didn't really mean that. And so you had to have a number of you had to have two cases, one following the other, saying, yes, we do mean it. We need our courts to be opened up. But, but the courts have now, I think, taken that on board. And we now have a much better appreciation of the constitutional function of the courts. And also, very interestingly, at last, this conservative approach saying in Scotland, we don't have a distinction between private law and public law has at last that again had to be challenged because they are. It's a different way in which the courts are acting, frankly. One of the ways in which I, I challenged it in the case of, of Davidson was to point out it says in the Treaty of Union, so we can go back and do your golden age fantasy stuff, uh, that there's a distinction between public right and private right. So when you say in Scots law you don't have that distinction, that's because you've forgotten you've actually had the distinction. So let's go back to 1707. There was a distinction between public right and private right. It just happens to be because of the depoliticisation of Scotland throughout the Union that public law went into desuetude. But with, with the devolved Scottish Parliament, politics coming back to Scotland meant there was therefore a space for public law to come into it. And I think that's why there's been a, a turbocharged development in the past 20 years. It's actually part of the repoliticisation of Scotland as having its own politics in Edinburgh, which means that the courts then have a new constitutional role to stand up to that, rather than simply being, you know, protecting, doing trust busts or uh, deciding on landed estates or whatever. Scottish cases are now at the forefront of some of those changes, 
For example, the case of Whiteman to do with uh, whether or not you could withdraw the Article 50 notice unilaterally was specifically brought in Scotland by campaigners in England because they felt that Scotland had a bit more distance from the, the Brexit politics uh, down south and that the courts would be more willing to go into areas which the London courts would say, we've got to back off, this is just far too controversial and therefore non-justiciable. And the same thing happened with the prorogation of Parliament case, where it was decided again by campaigners in England, Scotland being further away, uh, the judges will have a more dispassionate approach and will not raise the barriers of justiciability. And that's precisely what happened in the inner house. They, they decided on what would otherwise be an incredibly political issue. And they said, no, there's a real legal, legal issue here. Whereas in England, the, 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 the divisional court, which was made up of, of three uh, court of appeal judges, or, or at least divisional heads and, and the master of the roles, the uh, law chief justice and, and the head of the um, I think the Chancellor. So the three top judges in the High Court all got together in the in the Miller case, the prorogation case, and they said, no, this is entirely non-justiciable. So the differences between Scotland and England were quite remarkable in that sense. I was, Aidan mentioned earlier that the, I suppose, the rules about justiciability are not codified, obviously. We've been talking about the production of the case law on justiciability. Are there other forms in which rules or norms about justiciability are written down with any authority? Or indeed, are there norms which are not written down? Lorna, can we start with you on that and then follow on with Aidan? Well, the immediate one that comes to mind are textbooks and academic writings, you know, particularly recently following the cases on prorogation and the withdrawal from the EU lots of academic uh, writing about the issue of justiciability, about the court's approaches, uh, particularly in the prorogation case. And the prorogation case in the Supreme Court was a unanimous decision. So one might think that that provided great clarity on the criteria of justiciability. But I'd hasten to suggest it didn't in the sense that it's been met by quite a lot of academic criticism and a lot of writing on the subject. So um, one can look there. Um, one can look at Dicey, I suppose, uh, um, as was just general sort of exchange and um, public discourse. But the cases are really it, I think, in terms of getting a sort of up-to-date uh, knowledge of what the criteria are for justiciability. But uh, I would hasten to suggest that it's not all that crystal clear, even if one looks at not the prorogation case, because that was a unanimous decision, but in the Article 50 case, what uh, the case that went to the Supreme Court, which was Miller case as well, I call, I call it Miller number one, just to distinguish it from the prorogation case. But in that case, there was a dissent in judgment from Lord Reid on the question of justiciability of the exercise of prerogative powers. More, more not, not questioning whether the prerogative power was justiciable or not, but more about whether on the facts of that case, the government were actually, actually exercising a prerogative power, a treaty-making power or, or not. One can see even from the case law that there's room for some uh, divergence there. Aidan, would you like to add to that? Yes, yes. Sorry, I'm just going to start on Dicey. I mean, there is an incredible poverty, frankly, in the thinking about the Constitution among the higher courts, not so much in Scotland, because we're used to the idea of talking about the 
the Treaty of Union, and we're all, we're all brought up as undergraduates in Scotland with Lord Cooper of Curis's remarks in McCormick against the Lord Advocate and the idea that the, 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 the Treaty of Union is at some levels fundamental law. Now, uh, of course, one immediately points out it can't be so fundamental that it isn't changed without any problem. For example, 1933, the requirement for university teachers to sign to the Presbyterian Confession of Faith if you wanted to teach in a Scottish university, was removed, although that's set out in the in the Acts of Union. But in Scotland, I mean, certainly uh, when I was an undergraduate at Edinburgh, under uh, studying primarily with Neil McCormick, I mean, we, we talked about the Constitution a lot. We're used to the idea of a Constitution and seeing, taking a, a comparative approach, uh, particularly when you see at some levels the American Constitution as, as an historical artefact, as a freezing in time of the British constitution as it stood at 1776, uh, between 1776 and 1789. It's, it's very interesting when you when you understand the US constitution that way that the president is in fact uh, George III, that he has all the, the same powers as the king did at the time. And it hasn't moved on because it's been uh, frozen in, in place. But my impression in England and from English practice is one of the most astonishing things about it, and it's worn as a badge of pride with that, in that usual sort of pride and amateurism, that less than 50% of barristers have law degrees. They will have done one year of a concentrated course and then one year of advocacy, and then that's it. So the tendency then is, is for them to be, become what, what I would say siloed. They get involved in a specific area of law and they become specialists in that. But and they're very afraid of going outside of it because then it would expose their lack of knowledge of the, the law overall. And they're not very good at taking an overall view of things. And of course, it's the successful barristers who then go on to be appointed judges and, and then promoted up. But one of the things which they never will apparently learn is anything to do with the Constitution, because all they're told in this one year concentrated period is that the Constitution's unwritten. And the only rule that we've got is what's said in Dicey. I mean, Dicey, for God's sake, is that the sovereignty uh, parliament is absolutely supreme. It can do what it wants. If it wants to legislate for the killing of red-haired babies and this obsession with red-haired babies, it can do it. And there's nothing you can do about it because our parliament is supreme. The one thing it can't do is to bind itself. And you're thinking, is that it? I mean, is, where, where does this come from? And then, then you actually read Dicey and you read who Dicey was and you see what his political views are. He opposed the women's suffrage. He opposed any form of home rule for Ireland. He was incredibly keen on the white man's burden, imperial rule, Rudyard Kipling and all the like, the civilising Anglo-Edwardian imperialist. And somehow his vision, that early 20th century vision, of when England was at its zenith, and it is England, is then preserved in aspect. And that's all anybody can ever refer to in an English court when it comes to the Constitution. And even Miller 1, which has just been referred to, we, we get a reference by the, in the majority judgment, uh, the nine judgment uh, going on about, oh, well, yes, we've got, we have absolute sovereignty of Parliament. This has been established in statutes. You're thinking, when did when did Parliament get to bootstrap itself up in and somehow magic itself into being sovereign by passing statutes? That doesn't actually make any analytical sense apart from anything else, and is then set out in Dicey. And 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 that's the it's undergraduate first week of copying out what the textbook said in 1910. 
I find it frankly infuriating in its in its lack of proper overview, historical uh, and comparative, because it's the easy thing to do. But then anyway, again, you know, I'm a constitutional lawyer, so I, I would get you know worked up about this. But the but, but one of the problems I think as well is that there isn't enough properly, interestingly informed constitutional law coming out of the academy either. To an extent, what you get are commentaries when you do, when you do get really interesting and revolutionary decisions as the Cherry Miller case was, because it did, it changed things massively, because although in Miller one, they said constitutional conventions, they're totally, they're, they're not law. We've got, you know, we have nothing to do with them. The Sewell Convention, they might write it in, part, in a statute, but Parliament didn't really mean it to mean anything apart from some form of entrenchment. But of course, it can't entrench anything because it's supreme. In Miller one, as, as Lorna says, that they say constitutional conventions are non-justiciable, non-enforceable. In Miller 2, Cherry, they say the principle of accountability is a constitutional principle, which is also an enforceable legal rule. The accountability of the executive to parliament is an enforceable legal, legal rule. So what was a constitutional convention suddenly becomes a hard and fast legal rule, which is then applied. And that's a revolutionary decision. And as Lorna says, what you then get are criticisms of the unanimous decision of the Supreme Court for having changed things. So we have a request for the the Constitutional Convention of taking Dicion Constitutional Convention seriously to be struck down, effectively. Uh, and, and not just on Constitutional Convention. I want Dicey to be thrown out. He's had his day that he says nothing which is of any interest of which illuminates our current constitution. And the idea that you're constantly going back, just as in Scotland, one of the issues was that you're constantly going back and saying, isn't Viscount Stair just astonishing uh, when he was writing in 1680? Never looking at his own politics or the like, um, you know, again, decontextualising in the, in the same way, the fetishization, the idolization of Dicey, it's time for his statute to be statute to be torn down, frankly, and and for some intelligent thinking about what a constitution means in a post Nuremberg democracy. But there are cases coming up. Well, I'm taking these cases, uh, which t- which bring up those issues, and and I do hope that things will change, and I also hope that the academy will realise they're changing and assist in that, and rather than try and pull back and say, why are you changing the law? Within this, are there arguments for reducing the degree of indeterminacy about justiciability? And Lorna's talked about the problems, or in some ways almost the maybe the inevitability of it, but are there arguments for reducing it somehow through scholarship, through other means, and how might that be done? Let's start with Lorna. Well, I suppose the argument would be that if you were to reduce it somehow into a code or if, whether that's by legislation or something a, a little less detailed, the argument in favour of that would be you would have legal certainty, perhaps to, to a greater degree. Some might argue that uh, a code or um, legislation might serve to limit the court's intrusion into what some see as political territory. Well, I don't particularly uh, align to that view, but some, some might see that as an adv- advantage. I think there are real limitations on how much can be codified or reduced to writing in terms of um, justiciability. I mean, yes, you could probably have some headline principles and maybe you could even set out the constitutional principles that have been referred to in the prorogation case. But everything is so 
context specific and, and, and fluid in a, in a sense. Um, and I think the better for that because it does adapt to changing circumstances and does give that flexibility we have it that way. So yes, there are arguments in favour of reducing it, but um, I think there are limits to how uh, much progress can be made to proceed in that way. Aitan, I'd like to hear what you say about that, but also whether you think that there are arguments, not just of the difficulties of reducing indeterminacy, but that actually may be good reason for not doing so beyond the fact that it might reduce your employment. Oh, I don't think it's not going to reduce my employment. Any words are arguable. So as whether you call it a code or past case, it doesn't really matter. You know, it's always you know, I, a lot of my, my work until Brexit was about what is the meaning of the Charter of Fundamental Rights, which was a codification of the past case law of the European Court of Justice. And all that did was generate more work, actually. So codes don't make it any more certain because you're always using words. It might make it more immediately accessible and that people can say, but it says this. But of course, then there's a whole barnacle of meaning which immediately attracts to it. And that's why you still need lawyers, much as one, one might want to kill all the lawyers. I mean, the Napoleonic Code codification did not result in the abolition of lawyers, although it did, interestingly, result in the reduction of the social status, frankly. Where when you look at the difference between lawyers in, in France and, uh, and the UK, where lawyers are ridiculously highly paid, and it's seen as a good job. But one of the one of the big issues, it seems to me, that one of the big problems with any codification is that constitutional law is the law that dare not speak its name in the United Kingdom, because we have, as a union of four different traditions, potentially, they are inconsistent historical narratives which tell us what the Constitution is about. And so, depending on where you go, if you go to England, and you're arguing in England, you will refer to Magna Carta. I mean, your man on the street or women coming in on the street will refer to Magna Carta and various decisions in in the 17th century and perhaps the Bill of Rights of 1688. All issues around uh, the development of England as a, a separate jurisdiction, and that's fine. We have, why not refer to Magna Carta and all the rest of it? But if you go to a Scottish court and start talking about Magna Carta, they'll laugh you out. I mean, all sorts of things. But if you start talking about the Declaration of Arbroath, which I occasionally do, strangely, or, for example, uh, George Buchanan's De Uri Reniaput Scotos, where you can say, this is what our tradition is, and it maintains. So these, you've got these different stories, historical narratives, which never properly meld together. And so unless and until you get a unitary state, it is impossible to have a, a unitary codification uh, of matters. And if you have a codification in a non-unitary state, then all that will do is actually further heighten the clear separation between them. So those are some of the issues from a macro constitutional perspective as to why you, you don't want to, you don't want to shake things around too much because, you know, keep a hold of nurse for fear of getting something worse is basically it, particularly from the point of view of, of if you are uh, in favour of the maintenance of the union in, in, in some senses. So it's, uh, it's, potentially, it's potentially very fraught. And the other thing to say is, of course, that the political will for any kind of radical uh, codification or written constitution requires a revolutionary moment, that requires the notion of we're starting again now. This is uh, what it is because you've got competing narratives for the past. A constitution has to then say, this is where we're beginning. This is our year zero. 
And there just isn't that at the moment. There might be if there is further constitutional development, if, as, as some commentators seem to think, that Scottish independence, that might then give a, a revolutionary moment for England to rediscover itself, not just as an idea, but as a political and legal reality. And it might be interesting constitution making that might go on there, but I doubt it. Thank you both very much indeed. That has been fascinating and highly informative, as well as very enjoyable. So thanks to Lorna Drummond and to Aidan O'Neill, and thank you for listening.